Howdy, and welcome to another episode here at Crazy for Texas. I'm your host, Amber, and our goal here at Crazy for Texas is to explore the treasures of Texas history buried right in our backyards. We strive to create a map for others inspired to follow and learn more about Texas beyond the textbook. It's people, towns, heritage, traditions, and the legends that led us to where we are today. Please share your stories or questions by email to any of our social media platforms. Let's learn from and alongside each other as we dig for another nugget of Texas history. For now, sit back, put your boots up, and get ready for another episode on Crazy for Texas. Howdy, y'all. Welcome back to Crazy for Texas. I'm your host, Amber, and it's good to be back in the saddle again. We're just growing like wildfire over here, and we want to thank y'all for coming to learn more about our great state of Texas. You know, we expected our Texas listeners, but I want to give a special welcome to our listeners beyond the United States. We are so excited to learn that we've got listeners in Canada, Brazil, Sweden, India, and even Australia. If you are listening today, no matter where you're from, please email me at host at crazyfortexas.net so I can give you a personal thank you and get some ideas on what you'd like to hear more about. Our listeners, both near and far, are what inspire us to keep on going, so keep coming back. Whew, it's finally starting to cool off a little here now that it's October. For those of us that work or just love to be outside, we can feel the, the two to three degree drop in temperature. Let's just say that we're able to walk to our car without the suffocating heat stealing your breath. Bless America. But honestly, we are so blessed as compared to those battling the wildfires where they live. Please join us in praying for our listeners and families in California, Texas, Oregon, and Washington as they battle the fires and destruction. Fortunately, with the news, the internet, and social media, we're able to keep up with current events, not just locally, but globally, sometimes mere moments after they occur. For many of you, it's all you've ever known, a generation of constant contact and immediate updates through texts, news apps, and other social media. In many ways, these communication advancements have been a blessing. But when your kids call and ask what you're doing and why you haven't called them back within five minutes of their phone call, I'm left to wonder how they could have ever survived a life consisting only of landlines and a cassette tape answering machine recorder that you hoped and prayed didn't get all tangled up in a rat's nest as it began to play back the messages. Growing up, we had the Houston Chronicle and the Post newspapers. I can remember when they had a morning edition and an evening edition, but somewhere along the way it dwindled down just to one print a day. Things have definitely evolved over the years. When I met Johnny, I was sporting a flip phone. So when he got me my first iPhone, it was hard to get used to the upgrades since I'd been behind the times for so long as compared to my friends, coworkers, and family. As I've shared our Crazy for Texas journey with my 92-year-old grandmother, see grandmother, I fixed it. In our first episode, I said she was 93, so I promised her that I would I would set the record straight. So as I've shared our Crazy for Texas journey with my 92-year-old grandmother, she has been such a trooper as we have tried to teach her how to navigate to our podcast and find us on YouTube. I remember when she first asked, Amber, now what is a podcast? I had to take a moment to think about how to explain it. I think I said something along to the effect of, Remember the time before television, the times when families would gather around the radio to listen to fireside chats, news broadcasts, and adventure or comedy radio shows? Well, it's kind of like that, but you have access to them whenever or wherever you'd like to listen to them. So, Grandmother, 
this one's for you. I know many things have changed over the years, but I'm sure there are things that will never change. Families waking up to get ready for the day, the hustle and bustle of getting dressed, a bite to eat, a quick hug and a peck on the cheek as kiddos head off to school and parents off to work. I imagine that is how the day started for most families in a little East Texas oil town of New London back in 1937. Let me give you a little background. New London is a little town in Rust County just outside of Henderson and 25 miles southeast of Tyler. It was originally known as London, Texas, but they had to change their name because Kimball County had already established a U.S. post office station by the name of London. So the easy fix would be to call this town New London. Like much of East Texas, New London was catapulted from just being a cotton and farming community into a faster lane with the oil boom. In 1931, according to Texas Escapes, Umble and Oil Refining set up headquarters there, relocating 100 families to call it home. When the rest of the nation was facing the worst effects of the Great Depression, New London was thriving thanks to Umble Oil. With the influx of citizens in 1932, a state-of-the-art public school was built for the children of the area from the 5th to 11th grade, costing about $325,000, which was a pretty penny at that time. Here's a fun fact. I'm not sure if you noticed, but I mentioned London only went up to the 11th grade. That was no mistake. In Dr. Watlington's 2014 dissertation, she explains back then, the 11th grade was the highest level of high school. That is, until 1946, when the 12th grade was added by the State Department of Education. So more about the London School. In Ashley Betta's article, From the Margins of Disaster, she describes the additions of chemistry laboratories, a home ec cottage that had electric sewing machines. Everyone had a band uniform. There were sports, foreign languages, fine arts, and even college credit courses all while other schools across the nation could barely keep afloat or pay their teachers a fair wage. At this point in time, education could be considered a luxury, knowing there were cases during the Depression where many of the students had to quit school for the sake of looking for work to help support their families. I imagine the locals found the opportunity for their children to go to this school just as advantageous as their opportunity to find work. Many sources reported newspapers described it as the richest rural school in the world. Unfortunately, the oil boom that brought so much good fortune cost more than anyone would be willingly pay. On Thursday, March 18, 1937, I'm sure families across New London woke up just like any other school day. Dads may have slipped off to work before the light of dawn, moms fussing over the brushing of teeth and making sure their kids looked presentable out in public. I mean, Whatever would people think if a curl was out of place or a wrinkle was missed in a blouse? I can hear the reminders of, don't forget your lunch, or here's your knapsack, dear. I'm sure the older kids reminded mama that they'd be staying after school for the last minute practice to be ready for Friday's intramural meet with Henderson. With all the hustle and bustle, I wonder if kids back then still rolled their eyes as mama tried to get in just one last hug or kiss goodbye as they headed to the bus stop. It was a typical day of, of parents going to work, students going to class, moms at home cleaning. That afternoon, while some were home to greet their kids as they came home from school, others were at the school for the monthly PTA meeting. Sounds like a Norman Rockwell painting, huh? Well, that is until the clock strikes 3.17 p.m. Most of the upperclassmen were out on the fields practicing for the big games the next day. The rest of the upperclassmen in the 5th and 6th and 7th and 8th graders 
they were in class preparing for an extended weekend. The elementary campus behind the London School, having already been released for the day, students were already walking or on the school bus headed home. The PTA meeting had been relocated to the gymnasium to watch a special Mexican dance recital from some of their younger children, when all of a sudden, at 3.17, the London School exploded. Two elementary students walking home looked back and saw the building literally lift up into the air and crash back down to the earth, crumbling and mangling the once statuesque building. The explosion could be heard and felt from a four-mile radius of the school. No one outside or even inside the building knew what had just happened. Surviving students inside the school report having been sitting in class one second and then pulling themselves up from being thrown against the wall, engulfed in blackness the next. Others share having not remembering being blown through the window, only waking up amongst the ruins away from the friends they'd last been sitting next to in class. Some were trying to sift through the confusion of what had just happened, while others were pinned beneath the fallen debris, but all of them were trapped within the confusion of what had just occurred. The silence of children in shock being directed by teachers was just as deafening as the somber silence of those that lay lifeless among the rubble. Those that were able to move unknowingly crawled and walked over those that couldn't. The white haze of blasted plaster and mortar slowly settled as, as a blinding fog. Word spread quickly across the community in oil fields. A field manager ran to his team hollering, the London school has exploded. I need everyone to come with me now. Parents from the PTA meeting, athletes practicing on the sports fields, and brothers and sisters that had already begun headed home were the first to arrive, trying to make sense of the scene before their very eyes. Climbing the mountain of rubble, they began calling out for their loved one, frantically digging for anyone that answered. In the Handbook of Texas, Irvin May reports the news of the explosion had been relayed over telephone and Western Union lines by 3.32, only 15 minutes after the explosion. As other members of the community and surrounding towns with helping hands and rough necks from the oil fields with heavy equipment began to arrive, everyone sprinted into action. Within an hour of the explosion, Texas Governor Allred called in the Texas Rangers and the Highway Patrol for aid. Doctors, nurses, and supplies headed to the site from hundreds of miles away. Reported assistance came from the sheriffs of neighboring towns Overton, Henderson, and Kilgore, along with the droves of volunteers hailing from Humble Oil Company, Gulf Pipeline, Sinclair, and even the International Great Northern Railroad. Limp bodies were scooped up and carried to be lined along a fence. The children were sorted. Those living, they were taken by ambulance and cars to hospitals located outside of New London, because although it had a state-of-the-art school, it didn't have a hospital. The unliving children were transported to temporary morgues. Grocery and livestock trucks were emptied. They emptied their loads to help take children to where they could best be taken care of. The children from the destruction were virtually unrecognizable, especially if they were unable to respond. Matching masks of white faces, powdered white hair and clothing, and devastating facial injuries made differentiating one child from another was very difficult. Identifying lifeless bodies consisted of recognizing shoes, well, if they remained on, locating birthmarks or personal jewelry, that is, if they weren't torn off, down to recognizing crayon-painted fingers and toenails colored just the night before. Some victims were misidentified. Others were misdiagnosed as deceased rather than just unconscious. 
Everyone was working on adrenaline and autopilot. Peach baskets were being passed around for those to collect discarded shoes, random body parts, and chunks of cement in order just to clear the wreckage, digging deeper to find more victims. Everyone worked tirelessly through the night, running back and forth to hospitals and makeshift morgues, one being the local ice skating rink. Owners of grocery stores from surrounding towns brought in food to replenish and feed everyone as best they could. Floodlights were brought in from oil fields and bus horns were tied down to blare through the night. Martial law was declared within a five-mile radius of New London. Kilgore News reports an estimated 600 Boy Scouts had come to the aid with the rescue. Some were handed rifles to help secure the area, while the stronger adults were better fit to help move the debris. Other scouts were tasked with delivering food, water, cigarettes, and medical supplies on site. News reporters from all around converged upon the tiny town of New London to report the atrocity. One such reporter was the green, straight out of college, Walter Cronkite, who was at the time working at the United Press in Dallas, Texas. Many of the members of the press and news reporters that arrived on scene were urged to lay down their pen as their able bodies were of more use helping to remove the debris than writing an article. No matter how orderly workers and volunteers tried to be, there was just no time for documentation for who went where. Seconds were a matter of life and death. If parents weren't searching through the rubble, they were peeking under sheets of covering the bodies there on scene or trying to find out where their babies had been taken among the temporary morgues and surrounding town hospitals. I can only imagine the roller coaster of emotions, a sinking heart as you see what was and wasn't left of the school. Then the growing hope of not finding your child in the heap of tangled destruction, then back down with the gruesome injuries forever etched in your heart and mind while searching through the lifeless. Then elation erupts as you're told that your baby was recovered and taken to the new mother Francis Hospital in Tyler. And then the heartbreak upon arrival, learning that they expired en route. As easily as the community came together to work towards rescuing the children and staff members, many arguments broke out fighting over the recovered bodies. That's my son. No, he's mine. The search and rescue of the rubble continued throughout the night. In the Handbook of Texas, Mays continues to explain that 17 hours after the explosion, all victims in the debris had been removed from the site. Of the original 500 students and 40 teachers in the London School, 294 had died, with only 130 of the students escaping serious injury. But the malady of the disaster wasn't over. The cloud of powder, plaster, and mortar, it was replaced with a cloud of sorrow and despair. Where some families lost one child, others lost two or three. The following days were filled with 294 funerals. Each slain victim had its own casket, grave, and service. The surviving families and members of the community attended as many funerals as possible, as there were three or four ceremonies in an hour. Flower-draped coffins were carried in the beds of pickup trucks lined to follow the next in procession. In 2018, Sophia Grant shared with Time.com, the nearby Pleasant Hill Cemetery had given over an entire section to the children lost in the explosion. As a teacher, I can tell you that even when a small tragedy occurs, support systems are in place to help students and staff members deal with their feelings Teams of counselors are brought in to help them process their feelings and thoughts to find healing and healthy coping mechanisms to go on. In 1937, this was not the case. 
The remaining graduating class of 1937 and the remaining survivors finished out that school year in the gymnasium and other temporary buildings. Classes resumed a mere 10 days after the dreadful explosion. As teachers called roll, students would update for their missing classmates by calling out, moved away, in the hospital, or died. As mentioned by Clayton Jones in the Forgotten Stories of the New London School, many sympathies were sent from across the world, including from First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt, and check this out, even Adolf Hitler. Ironic, huh? Although I'm sure they were appreciated, they were of little comfort to the grieving families and community. Some of the victims' families just picked up and left, while others stayed put and drudged with their day-to-day routines. It was hard to talk about with friends and neighbors. I mean, how could you share a grateful heart with having your child's life spared when the person sitting next to you lost both of their children? Envy and bitterness naturally tend to grow in empty hearts while watching survivors continue on with their life when their loved one died. Survivor's guilt has a way of strangling a heart of thanksgiving for having a life spared. Bill Thompson, a fifth grader at the time, shared his account with Texas Monthly. I asked a student to change seats with me so I could flirt with a little girl in front of her. He later learned that that little girl that he traded seats with, she didn't make it through the explosion. All he could think about was, that would have been me. The guilt he carried haunted him throughout the years. The following year, a new building was erected to replace the demolished London High School, right in front of where the original campus stood. In 1939, a 72-foot-tall cenotaph, which is Greek for empty tomb, was built as a tribute to the 294 students, teachers, and visitors that had lost their life on March 18, 1937, as Miles Toller refers to as the day a generation died. Around the base, the names of each of the victims that passed away are listed by grade level and as faculty. Beyond this silent tribute, little was talked about this tragic day in history. With as much attention as it had received in the beginning, it received very little attention thereafter. I would assume that that's how the residents of New London preferred it. Speaking of what happened, what they had lost, and what they had seen would bring back the memories and pain that they had fought so hard to push down. Most every person in the town had been affected in one way or another. Whether mention or acknowledgments were avoided out of courtesy or out of fear of hurting others, it wasn't even spoken beyond whispers among family members and their descendants. As I got to visit with Miles Toller, an alumnus of the latter London school, he shared crossing by the memorial after school, knowing that it was for some students that had passed away there, but not truly understanding what had happened or the magnitude of the event that had changed history. He didn't know until many years later that even one of his best friends that he'd grown up with since kindergarten had had a sister that was lost in the explosion. I guess after all the victims were buried, their ghosts were just shoved into the family closet. No one talked about it. Sherry Serboff, 2017, in an article in the County Line magazine, local historian and museum docent Jimmy Lee Piercy explained they didn't trust outsiders with their grief. Sirboff even shares an account in the late 1960s when Miss Piercy had an informal meeting with Lucille Allred, Governor Allred's sister-in-law. Piercy asked Mrs. Allred if she could record Allred's memories of the state hearings. In response, she pulled out a 38 revolver and placed it on the desk and gave an emphatic no. The community's silence served as a blanket of protection for their broken hearts. The silence 
It was finally broken in 1977 with the first reunion of the survivors and family members of those that had lost their lives in the explosion four decades earlier. When people gathered, healing tears streamed as people shared their personal stories and accounts. As I try to make sense of why the parents of those children involved in the explosion chose silence over talking about it, I realized I have to have grace for them. They did what they felt they needed to do in order to survive, one day at a time. We aren't given a rule book for life and how to handle the tragedies we face. Reflecting on his career, the famed Walter Cronkite said, I did nothing in my studies nor in my life to prepare me for a story of the magnitude of that of New London tragedy. Nor has any story since that awful day equaled it. And that's even after the, his time as a war correspondent. Through the years, we've learned that crying is not a show of weakness. Talking about what we've been through is not a sign of being stuck in the past. When the survivors, families, and community members push past the fear of congregating and talking about what happened and how it has affected them throughout the years, no doubt they found healing through tears and vomiting out the poison they had been holding on to for decades. Now, reunions are held every two years on a weekend around March 18th to commemorate the lives lost, the survivors, and those that offered aid without hesitation. On both sides of the memorial statue, 294 crosses are placed into the ground as a visual reminder of those lost. Every March 18th at 3.17 p.m., people gather around the cenotaph in front of the school for a moment of silence and the playing of taps. Although London and neighboring Gaston High Schools were merged, renaming it West Rusk High School, you will still find traditions to honor those lost in the explosion over 80 years earlier. Miles Toller from the New London Museum explains, you will find yellow hash marks at the 37 yard lines on the football field at Bruce Bradshaw Stadium. A newer tradition that just started a few years back, at the start of every game, both home and away, a designated player is chosen to put on a number 37 football jersey for the coin toss. Yesteryear, they aim to forget. It is clear that the people of New London now solemnly vow to always remember. Now, to answer your lingering question, what in the world caused the explosion? Well, I'm glad you asked. This requires a multifaceted answer. So let's go back to the beginning of the school in 1932. London School was built on a slope, which lent itself to including a basement or crawl space beneath the structure. According to Bob Lambert of Midland Resource Recovery in 2022, the original architectural plans were for a boiler and steam distribution sense, uh, system to heat the school. However, the school board chose to install 72 gas heaters. So, pressing ahead to 1937, the school board made a decision to cancel their subscription with the gas company to tap into a local gas residue line so that they could save some money. Now, hold on. Before you go getting judgy on me, this was a common occurrence back then. The oil companies deemed the residue as of no value, but it was a money-saving tactic for those that could use it, so it was a win-win situation. Well, at that point in time, natural gas was color and odorless. There was virtually no way to recognize a gas leak. With the investigation of the explosion, they found that gas leak. Unbeknownst to everyone, natural gas had been accumulating and filling up the basement of the London school. On the afternoon of March 18, 1937, a shop teacher had been repairing a sander. 
When he turned it on, students reported seeing a spark, which fed down into the basement, igniting the huge pocket of gas, causing the explosion. Lawsuits filed against the school district and the oil company were dismissed, having none found liable. Taken from the NIV, Isaiah 61.3, He has sent me to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. The 294 may have lost their lives in the ashes of mortar and plaster, but there is beauty in their lasting legacy that affects you and I still to this day. Just two months after the explosion, the Texas legislature passed a law requiring a special scent to be added to natural gas so that it could be detectable. That's right. You know that rotten egg smell. Well, it's called Mercaptan, and it's a direct result of the New London explosion from 1937. Their lasting legacy has and will continue to save lives globally. The next time you smell that familiar, unpleasant odor, remember the 294 lives that were lost and now help save ours today. Johnny and I got a chance to go visit the New London Museum, and I have to tell you, I thought I was prepared. I'd gathered all my facts, had all my notes and information. All we needed was just a few pictures, or so I thought. There's no way that I could have given this story and all the victims justice without going there and seeing it for myself. We got to visit with Miles Toller. I can't just say visit. We bonded as he told me the story of that fateful day. Neither of us were there on March 18, 1937, but we shed tears together over the loss of so many and how the community chooses to honor them to this day. If you have the opportunity, please take the detour to visit New London in their museum and soda shop cafe. If you see Miles, please give him a hug for me and let him know we sent you. East Texas is, is near and dear to our hearts. Johnny's family's from Carthage, which is less than 40 miles from New London. We go there often to fish and to hunt, but you know, I had never even heard of the town New London until just a few years ago. Well, when my history loving honey bear told me about it. Having grown up in Texas, I can tell you the story of New London explosion. It was not in the history books, and it certainly isn't in the curriculum that I teach for fourth grade Texas history. I don't understand why. I mean, our lives are touched by this tragedy, and most of us don't even know why or how. John Davidson, head Dawson of the New London Museum, lost his sister in the explosion. In 2018, he shared with the Texas Standard, they say that no one is ever dead, truly dead, until no one remembers them and no one speaks their name. So what we try to do is to keep their memories alive by telling their story and not letting these kids be forgotten. Well, Mr. Davidson, we here at Crazy for Texas will join you in telling their story so they won't be forgotten. We plan on being there at the next memorial in March of 2024. As soon as they give us the official dates, we're going to let you guys know so that we can hopefully see you there. Johnny and I have made a personal commitment to attending every ceremony that they host every other year. We hope others who are crazy for Texas will join us in keeping their memory alive and never forgotten. Well, like I mentioned, I didn't know anything about New London or what happened there, but there is someone who did. I want to give a special shout out to the winner of our TikTok challenge. Congratulations goes to G Delight for reaching out with the first correct answer of New London. Thank you, Delight, for following and interacting with us and being crazy for Texas. 
you know, someone else reached out to us on TikTok asking for the famous Texan segment. I totally forgot to include it in our last episode. Bless America. Okay, so this week I need to make it extra special. Do y'all remember Sandy Duncan? She was in the Hogan family and a few family movies from the 1970s. Well, remember when I told you that there were no hospitals in New London in 1937? Well, apparently there still weren't any there when Sandy Duncan was born in 1946. So she was born in Henderson, Texas, just down the road, but she was raised in New London through the second grade. Then her family moved to Tyler when she turned or went to the third grade. All right now for our second Texan. Although he wasn't born here in Texas, he was born in Alaska. He got to Texas as fast as he could by the age of two. Are you ready? Tyree Wilson, the defensive end for the Las Vegas Raiders. He actually went to West Rusk High School, formerly known as the London School, right there in New London, Texas. Tyree Wilson played for, the tech, for Texas Tech before being drafted by the Las Vegas Raiders in 2023 as the seventh pick in the first round. I want to leave you with one final thought. Progression is often innocent and beneficial, but there's always a caveat. Our current avenues of communication, although convenient and quasi-instant, I feel we're losing the art of talking and storytelling. We've traded a telephone call for a quick text to avoid the niceties of, how are you doing? Or how's the family? For the, to the point, when's Uncle Jim's birthday? Without the aid of technology, most of our history was passed down by word of mouth. I shudder to think of how much has already been ebbed away and we will continue to lose with the closing of our mouths and the tapping of our fingers. Dates and facts can be accurately accounted for through fingertips, but determination and grit, anguish and turmoil, heart-pounding anticipation can not only be heard but felt through the whisper, the growl, or the exclamation in a story. Thank you for keeping history alive and listening to our stories. Perhaps you will share them with an ear or two and help ignite others to be crazy for Texas too. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review so we can grow and reach more listeners. To hold you over until our next adventure, visit us at crazyfortexas.net for more information and content about our explorations of the history of our great state of Texas beyond the textbook. Be sure to also check us out on YouTube and Facebook at Crazy for Texas and on TikTok at crazyfortexas.net. Remember, if you have any questions or suggestions about an episode you've heard, or even if you have an idea or a piece of your own history that's been passed down your family tree that you'd like us to explore for a future show, please contact me at host at crazyfortexas.net. Until next time.